My name is James Gleason, and I want to welcome you to the weekend teaching ministry of Sunrise Church here in Hillsboro, Oregon. Now, Sunrise is a church devoted to being a safe place to hear a life-changing message. And our vision is to lead people in a growing relationship with Jesus Christ. And so every weekend, we share a message of hope from God's Word, the Bible. Now, if you'd like to know more about discovering and growing in a relationship with the God who loves you, please take a moment to visit our website at www.isunrise.com. Now, from there, you can learn how to connect with the God who loves you. And you can learn how to grow with others along the journey of life. You can learn to develop a heart to serve the least, the last, and the lost. And finally, you can learn how to lead others to know Jesus Christ on this journey of disciples making disciples. And so now I invite you to follow along with our weekend message as you discover the heartbeat of God. You know, one of the reasons that I'm glad that we're in this series, going through the book of Acts, is because this book of Acts basically introduces to us real and authentic Christianity. You know, and during the season that we're in, especially, whether you're you're a follower of Jesus or you're a skeptic of Christianity, you know, we're looking for real and authentic Christianity. What is this really about? And when I think of interacting with somebody who's a skeptic of Jesus, inevitably I'm going to reach a place in that conversation where that person's going to say, I don't believe in Jesus or I can't believe in Christianity because, and fill in the blank, right? And a lot of times I like that because it gives me the opportunity to say, you know, I'm a pastor and I don't believe that either. But that's okay because that's not a part of real Christianity. In this book of Acts, if there's anything that can lay claim to real and authentic Christianity, that is this book. And so that's why I'm glad we're going through it together. Last week, Pastor James went through chapter 18, and he talked about how every Christian is different and necessary for communicating the gospel. We all have different gifts and talents and abilities and interests and experiences, and that's wonderful and necessary. And so this week, we're going to jump back into the story. We're going to be in the middle of chapter 19. I invite you to turn there in your Bibles. We're going to have some of the scripture up here on the screen as well. But just to set the stage, we're in chapter 19. We're we're following Paul and his companions, and now we find him in the city of Ephesus. The city of Ephesus was a major political, economic, and religious hub, not only of the region of that time, but also the the entire known world at the time. It was a city of great influence. And something happened in Ephesus to Paul and his companions that Luke, the author of Acts, he found so important and so intriguing, he recorded it in some detail. And so that's what we're going to walk through today, because this story in Acts 19 has so much to say to us in our world today, especially in this cultural moment we find ourselves in. So let's pick up the story in Acts chapter 19, verse 23. It says, about that time, serious trouble developed in Ephesus concerning the way. It began with Demetrius, a silversmith, who had a large business manufacturing silver shrines of the Greek goddess Artemis. He kept many craftsmen busy. He called them together along with others employed in similar trades and addressed them as follows. Gentlemen, you know that our wealth comes from this business. But as you have seen and heard, this man Paul has persuaded many people that handmade gods aren't really gods at all. 
And he's done this not only here in Ephesus, but throughout the entire province. Of course, I'm not just talking about the loss of public respect for our business. I'm also concerned that the temple of the great goddess Artemis will lose its influence and that Artemis, this magnificent goddess worshipped throughout the province of Asia and all around the world, will be robbed of her great privilege. So we're introduced here in this story to this guy named Demetrius, and we see that he's a craftsman. He's a silversmith, and he wasn't just a small business owner making trinkets. Rather, he was a large operation that employed many people. And he had a major contract in the city, and that was to make these idols, these handcrafted idols, in the image of the Greek goddess Artemis. Now, the the temple for Artemis was there in Ephesus, and it drew people from all over the region there for worship. Now, if I was Pastor James, right about now, I would be putting up some pictures. You know, because that's what he does, and he does it really well of the ruins and of the, of the temple and things like that. And he would show how he walked in the footsteps of all that. I love how he teaches that way. And I just want you to know that I don't have any pictures because I've never been there. Um, Pastor James, I know you're watching right now. You hear that? I've never been there. I've never walked. Um, just wanted to let you know that just in case. And so I'm not going to have any pictures, but I do want you to know that, that just kind of put it into context, that Demetrius was to the city of Ephesus what Phil Knight is the city of Beaverton, maybe the city of Portland, just to put it into context there. Now, from the story, it seems like Demetrius wasn't somebody who would have gone to listen to Paul. But as we saw in the story, he was rather unhappy with Paul. And interestingly, and interestingly, he was able to summarize something that Paul said, even though he probably didn't hear Paul directly. Did you catch that? It was in verse 26. He said, this man, Paul, has persuaded many people that handmade gods aren't really gods at all. Paul's message, in other words, had been preached so widely that it had become kind of a slogan that, that Madison Avenue, I think, would even be proud of. Handmade gods are no gods at all. You can even maybe put it to a little, to, to a little linga, a little, uh, whatever it's called. I can't even think of what it's supposed to be called. Anyway, you can put it to a little ditty of some kind there. But, but the idea there that it was a, become a slogan. It was well known all around the area. And it was literally changing the economy. And Demetrius was unhappy because his whole line of work was based on people worshiping idols. Now think about what that means. We know Paul preached the gospel, the good news of the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. But if you'll notice, not only in this story, but in other stories throughout Acts, he didn't just preach the gospel by itself. He preached the gospel as opposed to idols. And I want to emphasize that because to fully grasp the gospel, to fully grasp the implications of the gospel— You need to understand the gospel as opposed to idolatry. But you may say to yourself, but wait, that was then. This is now. Uh, We live in a secularized society. We don't worship and make idols. We don't name other gods. So why in the world would you say that we still in today's world have to confront idolatry? And that, my friends, just to speak frankly for a moment, is a common and naive perspective. The issue that Paul addressed wasn't the actual idols. It was the idea that we as human beings are central to the universe and that we make God. Think about that. 
In American culture, we may not craft idols in the image of a god, but we certainly make and worship our own gods. To be an American means that you can't tell me what to believe and you can't tell me who God is. I get to decide my spirituality. I get to decide my faith. And my friends, that is idolatry. That is what Paul confronted. And it is at the very heart of American culture. So you may be wondering, if idolatry isn't merely bowing down or crafting a statue, what is it? And so I just a simple definition of what it means to be, to have, what an idol is. It's anything that is functionally, and that is a key word there, functionally, most important to you for your happiness, your identity, your hope, and your meaning. And I wanted to emphasize that word functionally because a lot of times we say we believe in something. We say we believe in God. But you look at the evidence of your life, especially where you spend your time and money, and it'll say something otherwise. What is most important to you for your happiness, your identity, your hope, and your meaning? That will be your idol. So idolatry isn't bad things, isn't doing bad things. It's taking good things and making them ultimate things. It's taking relative things and making them absolutes. The language of idolatry goes something like this. When I have that, or when I achieve this, or when I get there, then I'll be happy. Then I'll be safe. Then everything will be okay. That's the language of idolatry. So whatever is the source for your happiness, identity, hope, and meaning is actually your idol. Now, in our day and age, we prefer the word addiction to idolatry. But make no mistake, they're the same thing. And I'm not just talking about drugs and alcohol. I mean, we are addicted anytime we crave something other than God in order to make life work. Although addiction to drugs and alcohol may be clearly more problematic— The most powerful idols in our lives are actually the good things that have become ultimate things. For example, family is a powerful idol. Whether it's seeking to please your parents or ensuring the success of our children. Fame, achievement, career, money, all powerful addictions are all powerful idols in our culture. Our looks, we put a lot of emphasis on that. Or, get this, the looks of our partner. Maybe it's a special relationship for you. Maybe it's a social cause or a political cause, a political party. If you're a regular around church, a big one is your moral standing. Ouch. All powerful idols because idols are good things that become ultimate things. Now, here's an important distinction between what we see in our culture versus what we see in Paul's day. See, in Paul's day, there was a God, a physical idol on pretty much every corner, and there was a God for everything. There was a war God, a sex God, a work God, a play God, an agricultural God. There was a God of the arts, a God of music. They had gods behind everything, and and we can look at that, and, and with a sense of cultural and historical arrogance, we can say, What a silly, superstitious people. And that would be nothing but hubris and arrogance on our part. And a lesson in missing the point. 
Because what they were overt about, we are covert about. And what, what they were out in the open and obvious about, we keep hidden. And we're completely ignorant of the fact that any relationship, any activity, anything in this world can be turned into a kind of salvation that we, uh, that we turn to as a source of hope and meaning. Now, we may not call it that, but make no mistake, we are worshiping when we do that. I read recently about a guy who lived in Boston, New York, and Washington, D.C., and had made the astute observation that the God of Boston is education or knowledge. And the God of Washington, D.C., power, maybe influence. And the God of New York, without a doubt, money. And as I read that, it got me to thinking, what's the God of Portland? And as I thought about how we might consider that, I thought, well, a good place to look would be to look at bumper stickers that people have or, or T-shirts that they wear. And so around Portland, of course, we see all sorts of, of bumper stickers that look like this. And that may seem a little bit strange to think of that as a God, but think about it with Portlanders, you know. We want to be weird, you know, and the weirder the better, right? And as I thought about it again, I thought, well, we don't have to wonder what the gods of Portlanders are because in some ways we carry our shrines on our cars. I mean, think of this. I mean, you probably see gods of Portland, maybe? And, and if this is the gods of Portland, then this next guy, he's got it bad. I mean, I think maybe that's a picture of idolatry at its worst or where that idolatry takes us. So now that we have a notion of idolatry, at least a sense of it in our day, I want to dive back into the story and see what happened in, with Paul and his companions. Picking up in verse 28. At this, their anger boiled, and they began shouting, Great is Artemis of the Ephesians! Soon the whole city was filled with confusion. Everyone rushed to the amphitheater, dragging along Gaius and Aristarchus, who were Paul's traveling companions from Macedonia. Paul wanted to go in too, but the believers who wouldn't let him. Some of the officials of the province, friends of Paul, also sent a message to him, begging him not to risk his life by entering the amphitheater. Inside, the people were all shouting, some one thing, some another. Everyone was in confusion. In fact, most of them didn't even know why they were there. The Jews in the crowd pushed Alexander forward and told him to explain the situation. He motioned for silence and tried to speak. But when the crowd realized he was a Jew, they started shouting again and kept it up for about two hours. Great is Artemis of the Ephesians! Great is Artemis of the Ephesians! And here in this portion of the story, we get a glimpse into the power of idolatry. Paul was preaching against it, and, and a riot breaks out. I mean, think about this. When you take away something good from somebody, they're probably going to get angry or maybe sad. <laughs> but if you take away something ultimate from another person, they're going to go ballistic. They're going to go ballistic. And that's what we see in this story. So in a sense, idols have great power. Idols control people. You push on an idol and it's going to push back, sometimes violently. Now, this ideas of idols and the power they have in our lives may seem a little rather abstract, but I just want to get real for a moment about how an idolatry played out in my own life. 
So you see, for about the last 10 years, I have played pickup basketball every Tuesday and Friday at 6 a.m. at Westview High School. I love playing basketball. It's a big part of my week. It's a place where I get exercise, camaraderie. It's a great group of guys. If you've never played pickup basketball, maybe you don't know that in pickup basketball, you call your own fouls. And you know it's kind of a gentleman's agreement. You don't call all the fouls because we're amateurs and we're not that good and so we foul all the time and if you called all the fouls we wouldn't actually play the game. So you, you don't call everything but you do call some and, and sometimes there's a disagreement over what's a foul and what isn't or what should be called and what isn't, what shouldn't be called. Sometimes those disagreements get heated, at least for other people. Actually, as you'll find out here, for me as well. So there's this one particular game, uh, it was several years ago now, and, and the guy who was defending me, he decided he was going to kind of get right up in my space, and he was going to really defend me hard, and so he was bumping, and he was pushing, and he was slapping, and he was grabbing, and if you know anything about me, not even just on the basketball court, but even in general, um, I, I like my personal space, you know, in some ways, this whole social distancing thing, six feet, you know, I like it, I'm, I'm kind of feeling a little more relaxed about that. But on the basketball court, this kind of is a way as, as well. You know, I don't get to be in my space, especially not when we're playing pickup basketball. We're just trying to have fun. And so this guy is in my space. I'm calling fouls, but I don't want to call all the fouls. And, and I, I'm handling it. I'm trying to deal with it for a little while until I couldn't deal with it anymore. And there was one time, I don't think he fouled me any harder or any worse. All I, can, all I know is when he fouled me, something primal was unleashed from deep within. And before I even knew what I was doing, I took the basketball in my hand, I put it way back here, and I chucked it as hard as I could, and I hit him square on in the face from about three feet away. If you don't know it by now, pastors are human too. So why do I bring that up? Because at that moment... I was an idol worshiper. At that moment, my desire for fun, my desire to succeed at the game or whatever it was, had gone from a good thing, there's nothing wrong with that, to an ultimate thing. It had become more important than that person made in the image of God. It had become more important than my witness for the gospel amongst that group of people. This is the very definition of an idol. So maybe as I'm sharing that story, you're wondering, you know, what are the idols in, in your life? And, and in a similar way that I just told that story, a good place to go or a good way to diagnose yourself, if you will, is just to ask yourself, maybe even right now or maybe in a, just this last week, when were you angry? When were you anxious? When did you have a sense of despair or maybe jealousy or envy? When you think about that, then ask yourself, what's at stake? Or another way to look at it, what's being threatened? And there, my friends, will lie your idols. Things that you believe are necessary for your happiness. And you know what? In this season of forced isolation, one thing I can, be, I can guarantee is that our idols are being pushed to the surface <laughs> because that's what adversity does. Adversity illuminates what matters most to us. 
So in a sense, idols have great power. Push on them, and they push back, sometimes violently. But on the other hand, and this is where it's a little paradoxical, on the other hand, idols are powerless. And we see this in the story. So I just want to continue reading in the story. It's time to pick it up from verse 35. At last, the mayor was able to quiet them down enough to speak. Citizens of Ephesus, he said, everyone knows that Ephesus is the official guardian of the temple of the great Artemis, whose image fell down to us from heaven. Since this is an undeniable fact, you should stay calm and not do anything rash. You have brought these men here, but they have stolen nothing from the temple and have not spoken against our goddess. If Demetrius and the craftsmen have a case against them, the courts are in session and the officials can hear the case at once. Let them make formal charges. And if there are complaints about other matters, they can be settled in a legal assembly. I am afraid we are in danger of being charged with rioting by the Roman government, since there is no cause for all this commotion. And if Rome demands an explanation, we won't know what to say. Then he dismissed them, and they dispersed. Isn't that a fascinating conclusion to the story? You know, in most of the stories that we find in Acts, we see Paul or maybe Peter giving a a sermon of some kind, and and it ends with the gospel. And here it ends with a speech by a city official. And that is unique in Acts. You don't see that anywhere else in the book of Acts. It's unusual. And in fact, you may even get to the end of that story, and you wonder, so the moral of the story is what? Right? But I think it's actually very cagey what Luke is doing here by showing us this. Because the mayor here is is essentially saying, you say these guys are disrupting the social order, but... You're actually disrupting the social order. And what Luke is getting at with the, Lord, with the mayor's speech is, you say idols, in this case the idol of Artemis, is what gives us social order, and yet it's idolatry that's actually disrupting social order. In other words, this is a narrative version of what we read all through the Bible about idolatry. And that's this. Idols never give you what they promise. They never give you what they promise. They actually give you the opposite. They won't give these people social order. In our case, they won't give us happiness. They won't give us safety. They won't give us self-esteem. They won't give us love. In fact, they'll give us the opposite. A woman named Erin Callen wrote an article recently in the, or actually several years back in the New York Times uh, that illustrates this rather well. She was once the CFO or chief financial officer of a major New York investment bank. And the article she wrote is entitled, Is There Life After Work? And she described a common American myth. And that myth says, you work like a dog. I mean, you work and you work and you work. You set everything else aside. And then eventually you'll have all that you need to then live the life that you want. It's an American myth. And in this article, she calls it a lie. Because she did that for so long. That's all she knew how to do. I want to read an excerpt here from the article. This is, this is her words. I didn't start out with the goal of devoting all of myself to my job. It crept in over time. 
Each year that went by, slight modifications became the new normal. First, I spent a half hour on Sunday organizing my email to-do list and calendar to make Monday morning easier. Then I was working a few hours on Sunday, then all day. My boundaries slipped away until work was all that was left. Inevitably, when I left my job, it devastated me. I couldn't just rally and move on. I did not know how to value who I was versus what I did. What I did was who I was. She thought work was her servant, but work had become her God. She couldn't stop working. She didn't know who she was apart from work. And my friends, that's what idols do. They steal your very identity, even as they promise you an identity. So Paul talked about idolatry all the time when he preached the gospel so that we would know what we needed to be rescued from with the gospel. Well, the last thing I want to highlight to you today and from the story is that opposing and escaping idols always exacts a cost. Paul and his friends were almost killed by a riot because they opposed idols. See, we need to understand there's more going on with idolatry than mere psychological factors. There are spiritual forces behind idols. It's what the Bible calls powers and principalities. It's very difficult to fight them in ourselves, and it's very difficult to fight them when we're seeking to rescue others. So how do we defeat idols? Well, the answer, I believe, lies in the fact that Luke, who wrote this book called Acts, wrote another book. It was his namesake book called the book of Luke. And here in Acts, we see Paul and his friends almost killed by a crowd of people. And the, the princip- because the powers and principalities behind that crowd wanted them dead. In the other book, Jesus Christ was killed by a crowd who yelled, crucify him. Powers and principalities were behind his death, and yet the results were quite the opposite of what they had in mind. As Paul wrote in Colossians 2.15, he, meaning Jesus, disarmed the powers and principalities. He made a public spectacle of them on the cross, triumphing over them. So I just want to bring this home for us today. I imagine by now, if you've been, at least if you've been listening and to stories and to the scriptures, that maybe there's just some things that have been illuminated to you about possibly some idols in your life. And I want to just talk about what we can do with those. And the first thing I want to do, though, is to talk about what not to do. And that would be to take what could be called the Stoic or the Buddhist way. According to these, you, in order to avoid being enslaved or addicted, you need to learn to detach yourself from everything so that you can be addicted to nothing. And that's not the Jesus way. You don't kill desire to follow Jesus. You don't need to love things less. You don't need to love your career less or your family less. You need to love God more in proportion to those things. As C.S. Lewis once wrote, God doesn't find our desires too strong, but too weak. We are too easily satisfied with lesser loves. We need to learn how to love God more. And to do that, I just want to recommend one central thing. That is to learn to see beauty in Jesus. 
First, I want you to see beauty in Jesus as a suffering servant. Jesus, who had all the power and privilege of, of, live, of being God, he gave it all up and became human being like you and me. He lived the life you and I long to live but can't. He died the death we deserve. He died on our behalf. He rose from the dead, conquering sin and death. He came not to be served, but to serve. What beautiful, wonderful love. Jesus is the most beautiful human who has ever lived. And he wants to be in a relationship with you. He wants to know you and be known by you. He wants to love you and be loved by you. His offer is full and complete. He says, come to me and I will give you forgiveness, restoration, and joy. We grow our love and our, and our adoration for God by seeing beauty in Jesus as a suffering servant. But that's not all. We also need to see Jesus, Jesus, beauty in Jesus as an exalted king because that's what he is right now. And, and to get a glimpse into what that looks like, we all we have to do is go to the last book of the Bible. It's the book of Revelation. And in chapter four, we get the kind of the, the veil pulled back of what's going on right now in the heavenly places. And as I read this, that's what I'm gonna do right now is I'm gonna read this account the whole thing from Revelation chapter 4. And I don't want you to turn there right now. Instead, I want you to, to close your eyes because John, the author here, he sees into a glimpse into heaven and he is so enraptured by it, but he, he's so, he finds it so difficult to describe, try to describe it because it's so beyond him. And so he's like, he's grasping for images of the known world to try to give us a glimpse into the scene. And so I want you to close your eyes and with your imagination, picture What's going on in this scene as we see the exalted Jesus? John writes, Then as I looked, I saw a door standing open in heaven, and the same voice I had heard before spoke to me like a trumpet blast. The voice said, Come up here and I will show you what must happen after this. And instantly I was in the Spirit, and I saw a throne in heaven and someone sitting on it. The one sitting on the throne was as brilliant as gemstones, like jasper and carnelian. And the glow of an emerald circled his throne like a rainbow. Twenty-four thrones surrounded him, and twenty-four elders sat on them. They were all clothed in white and had gold crowns on their heads. From the throne came flashes of lightning and the rumble of thunder. And in front of the throne were seven torches with burning flames. This is the sevenfold spirit of God. In front of the throne was a shiny sea of glass, sparkling like crystal. In the center and around the throne were four living beings, each covered with eyes front and back. The first of these living beings was like a lion, the second like an ox. The third had a human face, and the fourth was like an eagle in flight. Each of these living beings had six wings, and their wings were covered all over with eyes inside and out. Day after day and night after night, they keep saying, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God, the Almighty, the one who always was, who is, and who is still to come. Whenever the living beings give glory and honor and thanks to the one sitting on the throne, the one who lives forever and ever, the 24 elders fall down and worship the one sitting on the throne. 
the one who lives forever and ever. And they lay their crowns before the throne and they say, you are worthy, O Lord our God, to receive glory and honor and power for you created all things and they exist because you created what you pleased. And what I want us to focus in on there was the response of the 24 elders. As soon as they heard the worship of God, they took their crowns, the good gift that Jesus, the one on the throne, had given them, and they put it at his feet. They threw him down. In other words, the wonder of who God is, Jesus is on the throne, was more important, more beautiful, more valuable than anything else, including the gifts that he had given. Jesus is the most beautiful being right now. He's exalted on his throne. He is worth our adoration. So when you see Jesus in exalted beauty, your heart cannot help but go out to him. It raises your love for him so that anything else lowers in importance. And it means that money then is just money. Stuff, it's just stuff. People, they're just people. Wonderful people for sure, but still, just people. And you discover that Jesus sets your heart free. And so in the season of forced isolation, I just want to, I just want to beg you, spend time seeing beauty in Jesus, both as a suffering servant who walked this earth and gave his life for you and me, but also as the exalted king who's ruling over the universe as we speak. He is worthy of our attention. He is worthy of our affection. He is worthy of our adoration.